Welcome to Post Break. I'm Chris Peterson, Board Secretary of the Post New York Alliance. This is our weekly discussion of all the forces shaping our industry right now. And today's topic is Crafty Apes in Space, a VFX breakdown of Space Force. Now I'd like to introduce our moderator, post-production supervisor, associate producer, PNYA board member, Jennifer Lane. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks to uh, the PNYA for having this event. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here and thank Crafty Apes so much for participating. Crafty Apes is a visual effects company that started in 2011 and it is in many cities, Vancouver, Baton Rouge, um, uh, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and of course, New York. And we are here to talk about um, their work on the Netflix series, Space Force, which uh, aired on May 29th and is one of the top 10 streaming shows on Netflix. 10 episodes created by um, Steve Carell and Greg Daniels. It's a very funny show about being in space. And Crafty Apes came in to help with the last uh, three episodes uh, in the development of the work on the moon as part of the show, if you haven't seen it. But I want to introduce our panel. And we have, I'm very grateful to have these gentlemen be a part of the panel. Uh, we have Jason Sanford, who is a visual effects producer and co-founder of Crafty Apes. Thank you so much for joining. We have uh, Brandon Nelson, who is a visual effects supervisor at Crafty Apes. We have Jabbar Raisani, who's a consulting visual effects supervisor for Netflix, and Patrick Sullivan, a CG lead artist at Crafty Apes. And they were all very involved in this project. So I want to ask, we have a breakdown reel to show the audience, but I would like to ask how you came to be involved with the project um, since you came in after the, uh, toward the latter half of the show and your work with the, the moon development and everything in space that you worked on. I guess that's a question for Jason, how you first got involved. Yeah, um, we first got involved by um, uh, Trent Smith, who is uh, the VFX producer slash uh, supervisor on uh, Space Force. Um, we, I had worked with Trent uh, quite a few years ago on a couple projects um, over to Entity Visual Effects. And then, um, he called, it up, called us up, um, they were, they were um, what would you say, the workload began to grow on the show. And, um, and so they asked us if we could jump in and help out on the last three episodes. And uh, we were happy to. Um, and uh, so we put the, put the team together and uh, you know, started uh, doing some bidding for them. Uh, they liked our numbers and uh, off to the races we went. So that's kind of how it, how it got started. Uh, we've also done many shows with Netflix over the years. And so there's a good relationship there. And we've kind of been sometimes the 911 uh, guys to come in and, and help finish things up sometimes. So that's how we got started. And uh, it was a good, good project for us. It was a lot of fun. Um, so that's great. And you, this was all in uh, February, pre COVID. Um, it was when you first got involved. When we first Started, it was pre-COVID. Um, we started doing just a few shots initially, and then um, and then COVID hit, um, and that's when we delivered the last two episodes um, during COVID. And so we went from um, our whole team working from 
the office to a remote setup uh, using Teradici. And, um, and so the whole team, literally, we had to learn how to work remotely very quickly um, so that we didn't miss any delivery dates and our, um, you know, reviews or anything like that. And we, it, it worked out. We, I think, uh, made the transition within two days from working in the office to literally all of our whole craft team across all offices um, within two days. We were set up remotely. That's amazing how quick that turnaround was. Well, I'd like to show the, the reel to everyone. And um, so there's music that plays under it. So we'll be watching the, the reel for two minutes and then we can play it again without sound to, to reference it. And uh, for the audience's information in the chat box, there's also a link to it. And it's also on Slack for later viewing. Obviously, there are a lot of shots on the moon, and I wanted to ask about the development of the look of the moon and um, the texture of it and how you came to design it and then implement it in, throughout all those shots. And I'm sure there are more shots than those um, from the series. So I guess that's a question maybe for Brandon. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I mean, developing the look of the moon, we, I don't think, um, we had never settled on a specific location of the moon where we were supposed to be representing. Um, but we did use pretty much exclusively NASA photographs for what the lunar surface would look like. Um, and uh, kind of interpreting that into what needed to blend into the plate photography along with more story driven points of kind of what we would see from each angle of shot to give it the most interest as well. Um, so based mostly on, on NASA photography and kind of, you know, crater and um, lunar dust patterns that you would see on the moon. <laughs> I love the jumping part. Uh, and with the, with the development of that now, since uh, 
that design was all done while you were working together or were you still developing that while you got separated by the COVID uh, shutdown? Uh, I think at first we had done some initial concept renderings, basically just single frames from some hero angles, trying to establish, you know, like what does the landscape look like when she first steps out of the lunar lander onto the surface? Um, mostly for Greg Daniels, the showrunner, to be able to kind of approve uh, the look of, you know, what we're seeing out there. Um, and I think we had done that pre-COVID and then we didn't actually get into the shot production and rendering of the full frame ranges of those angles and really refining the asset until we were all um, working from home. And how, and how was that from working separately? How did you uh, share the elements and make sure, obviously everyone can send their shots in ha um, into you to review, but what was the collaboration and the workflow for working outside of the office in creating those shots? Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely difficult at first. I mean, when we sat down and we weren't in the, able to walk to each other's desk anymore, it became pretty difficult to share like abstract ideas uh, especially just typing all day and eventually getting into doing more like Zoom chats. Um, but um, we had gotten to a point where we all kind of knew where the look was going before we left, which made it a little bit easier to finalize that look. Um, but still, I think it was just a lot of, a lot more um, screen captures with annotations, uh, getting showing people multiple examples um, and just kind of trying, trying to refine the look um, without being able to stand next to somebody and point at something. Um, I have a question for Patrick, since uh -huh. you were one of the artists involved in, in completing the work, your what were the challenges for you in, in completing this and working with other artists um, uh, on this I job? I think um, right out of the gate, it was, you know, where do we point the camera? How's it supposed to look? You know, a rock that's supposed to be this big or it's supposed to be this big, we weren't really sure. So as Brandon was saying that we, we kind of got in early with setting the style frames of that, so that, that was a big help. So I would say it would have been a lot harder if that had happened when we were at home, but having a good base of what it needed to look like made it a lot easier for me to go in and, and finalize all the rendering. So that was, that was definitely the biggest challenge. How did you uh, address um, dust? You know, the jumping scenes, like what were the conversations like regarding the reaction of the moon surface? I'm not sure if there was any footage of the original astronauts doing any jumping on the moon surface. You know, the amount of levels of conversations regarding dust. Yeah, for, for the wide shots that didn't come into play too much for us, I mean, we had, you know, to simulate their, uh, you know, I think it's like one six gravity jumping. There were wires that needed to be removed from set, but there was one hero shot of, you know, the whole, the whole series about getting boots on the moon. Um, one of the hero shots is close up of a, a boot hitting the dust. And, you know, that was, I think, you know, it's filmed on a soundstage at normal earth gravity, but we did do a certain amount of retiming to try to get that dust to really slow down and look like it was more zero G in the way like the rocks rolled away from the feet and stuff like that. Uh, Jabbar, working with uh, Netflix and between, you worked between Netflix and uh, Crafty Apes in designing this, um, what were the challenges you, you found in 
designing this and the communication with Netflix and you know, there, were there many cooks in the kitchen is really the question. Uh, you know, fortunately there weren't a lot of cooks in the kitchen. The, the difficult part for me was I came in post COVID and so I didn't even get the opportunity to meet anyone on the show. So I never met Greg Daniels. I never met a single person that worked on the show except for one person that I already happened to have known. So that was uh, an interesting sort of uh, challenge was to sort of get to know Greg, get to know his aesthetic without ever having an in-person conversation with him. Um, but once I sort of got dialed in and understood what he was after, uh, got connected with Crafty Apes and understood the directions they had been giving, then I think we, we aligned pretty quickly and then it was just about getting the show delivered in time. I would say, what the, what was the most challenging part? If you weren't communicating directly with uh, Greg Daniels, was he? How was he seeing this footage and, and the work in progress? How were you showing it to him? Obviously, without a proper visual effects review session, what were the uh, what was the workflow in in the communication between the artists and you, Brandon, the supervisor, as well as with demonstrating stuff to Netflix and the showrunners? I guess that's sort of a question for all of you. I mean, for, for my part, um, we would do, we ended up setting up a laptop uh, at Greg's house and uh, our PM, VFX PM would remote into it, set up a CineSync session and then just tell him, okay, everything is set up, just walk in and you can start looking at shots now. And then <laughs> we would look at shots that way and get, get his feedback in, in real time. But we'd also do a lot of shotgun playlists. So we would just send a playlist. Here's all the shots to review. Here's the notes per shot and then he could do it in his own time, give us notes. And then if there needed to be additional follow-up, then um, I, we would do just a, a call and talk through the shots. And then I would relay notes to, to Crafty and then we would have our discussions via, I mean, we did CineSync, we did just sometimes calls, sometimes just Skypes or Zooms. It was, a, it was a combination of ways of keeping in touch. That's great, excellent. Yeah, we, we started using, utilizing uh, Frankie uh, on this project, which I hadn't used before, because I guess you know, CineSync requires each user to have the files downloaded to their machines, and everyone's remote. That makes it more difficult to do. So, Frankie was letting us do a more like central, decentralized review session by kind of hosting everything in the cloud versus needing that stuff to be on everyone's local machines. I recently just used Frankie myself, and it is a fantastic software because you save a lot of time. You don't need to have every user download the shots and then and then link them up through CineSync. One person can be the host. Uh, it's just a matter of getting that footage up on a cloud that everyone can access. So yes, it's a it's a brand new software that is very helpful in the COVID time. Um, I have a question now for uh, Jason from the producing side. Mm -hmm. um, the challenges that you felt with the uh, with creating the work, not just because of COVID, but just as far as the scale of the work and the magnitude of it and the shots and how you felt that um, the communication went between you and Netflix regarding the process and how was it working with Netflix? You know, working with Netflix, we've worked with Netflix quite often. So um, we kind of know their workflow. Uh, we kind of know what their needs are. Um, I think our biggest challenge was really, um, you know, the, the time, um, you know, it, it was a limited time for us to get the work done. And um, also, you know, we had to kind of work within a, you know, a very tight budget. And um, so being able to manage the artists and manage the artist's time. And then also now that the artists were working from home, um, you know, we had to like put parameters on, you know, how, how long people could work and, 
know, what they were working on just because they're no longer in the office. So we had to kind of learn how to manage everybody from home. And uh, so that, that was definitely a challenge. But working with um, Netflix was, was great. And um, as soon as Jabbar joined and uh, started focusing on the last two episodes, that really kind of helped the process. Um, I think one of our, one of our challenges was um, because um, the show had a very fast deadline um, that one of our challenges was just getting the feedback from the showrunners. And, um, and when Jabbar jumped in and uh, started getting involved in the show with us, um, that really helped the process tremendously. Um, he has such a great eye and was really able to kind of like um, guide us to bringing it home. And um, so we're really proud of the work. It's, um, it was a fun show to work on. Um, we're proud of it. So, yeah. That's great. I have some technical questions now. What, um, just how some of these shots were accomplished. I know you had some images that you used, you know, that you, you found. And just there in the breakdown reel, and I don't know if I should play it again without music for you to talk through it, and we can pause on certain things, but just the, the multiple layers of design and the workflow, I don't even know what software do you guys use, what kind of machines, what programs, if you could uh, speak to that, I guess this is a Patrick question. Sure. Um, so I'm primarily a Maya user, I use 3ds Max and I use Nuke. Um, and between the three of those softwares, we were able to cover what we needed. Um, so basically, have a shot, <laughs> have the, the practical. Um, I go in and track everything in uh, software, another software called Synthize. Basically, set up a camera, set up a, a scale, where the person is in space, where the ground is in space. And then I bring that into Maya. Um, between Maya and Max is where we had the main uh, moon surface. So most of the rendering of the moon surface was done out of Max but I'm much faster in Maya and um, sharing our, our pipeline between Maya and Nuke was, was much faster for us. So I was able to do just a little quick transition for all my cameras of all my, of, of all the shots. So you know, when you have so many shots around a single environment, you, you want to be careful about not seeing the same environment. So it was like, you know, really, really make it look grand and show how pretty it is. So it was like finding the right areas to make it look right really unique looking shots, especially for maybe what they're doing and maybe specifically with well, the, um, the, the trucks are driving up. Um, so it was just designing all that, laying all that out, making sure that that looks good, that works, and then um, bringing those cameras over to Max, where the, again, the main, the main moon surface was, was set up and built. And um, so I'd be rendering out of there. And then I'd send everything over to Nuke um, and some, some of their shots, um, we gave the so they have the camera and they also have some of the base geometry so the geometry itself of the the moon surface was a lot of detail and you wouldn't be able to necessarily load it in, in all the software so i was able to give them um kind of like a low to medium res that they were able to re reproject on any textures they needed and do any extra um, matte painting on top to maybe just add a little bit of detail or you know carve out the, the light a little bit in a certain area and that was just kind of back and forth for for all the different shots. And you said multiple cameras. Mm -hmm. um, so were the actors shot on green screen with multiple cameras at the same time? Uh, just when I say multiple cameras, just like each, each individual shot. So ah, you know, whatever, whatever number of shots it was, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, if, if some of them happen consecutively, it would help to have those four or five cameras roughly in the same 
um, world at the same time. So I can, you know, as if, if they were, if this was being shot on the moon for real, we'd have an idea of like this camera is pointing this way and they're looking at this person from here. What would our background look like on a similar, in, in a similar sequence of another camera angle? So having those together, it helps um, set up a, a nice sequence. Um, I have a question about all the visors or the glass shields in front of, um, you know, all the astronauts. It seems that most of them were shot with costume with no glass and that it needed, it, it needed to be filled in and then a reflection was based. How come, why were, why was the glass not already in the costume? I think there, there'd be a significant amount of reflection removal that would have to happen. I mean, every shot you would end up seeing the camera or the crew or the set lights reflected in that glass. So it's easier to shoot without the glass in there and then just add it in, in post. Or it, it's at least cleaner that way to do it. Right. And how, and in the, in the breakdown reel, there's, um, it seems that there are multiple steps in adding that as well, because it is a, not a flat surface you're adding, obviously. And is there, are, are certain, were certain shots with the glass replacement much harder than others? Um, I think we, we definitely paid more attention to the close-up shots. Um, they needed to have a certain level of detail to make them realistic uh, with all the dirt and scratches that we're able, able to see on the glass surface. Um, and, and our pipeline for doing those shots was 100% nuke-based. Um, so we did the tracking of the helmets um, in Nuke, we did the rendering of the ray trace reflections on the glass and um, the addition of the extra AOVs for the compositors to use with the dirt and the dust and the scratches all in Nuke. Um, so we made like a little mini pipeline around that, um, which worked out um, really well in the end and, and kind of streamlined the process, not having to um, use multiple software packages, say, you know, Synthize for tracking the helmets Maya for rendering uh, the helmet glass assets and then comp comping it in. We could kind of keep all that in one place and it made, made things go a lot faster. That's great. And did you, uh, did you have storyboards when you joined in? Did, were there already storyboards and how the sequence would play out and what, how far you would see and the, the, the big hero shot of seeing the earth? Was that all pre-planned as far, like it done in the production side and so you came in and already knew what the sequence of events was? Um, we had, I mean, we, we had the, the full edit to review. I don't necessarily remember there being storyboards, although there might have been. Um, plenty of concept art had been generated as well. Um, jumping back to like the, the concept phase we went through, um, one of the things that helped streamline streamline that process was, you know, when we started building our lunar surface asset, rather than trying to select individual backgrounds for each shot that we thought were interesting, and then uh, rendering those out and then getting in those in front of the uh, Greg and the team at Netflix to approve, um, we, we rendered a full 360 degree panorama of our moon surface asset. Um, and then you know, in Nuke, we were able to kind of just rotate this panorama around and try to find the most interesting background um, for the plates uh, and where the plate would integrate into that moon surface. Um, and be able to very quickly just choose another location if, if that wasn't working very well. Um, 
and that, that helped streamline the process. And then once the once those approvals were made, it was very easy to then go back and and look at our cameras and say, okay, this this is the direction we're looking at on our asset now. Let's just rotate the camera in the world to match what we did from our panorama and render the shot to completion from there. So it kind of really quickly um, gave us a, a full view of our entire world and our entire asset that we could just kind of pick and choose quickly where we wanted to take the final shot. I'd like to see that 360 degree panorama. That would be really interesting to see. Um, regarding uh, space and gravity, um, how much were you involved in the floatless feeling of the, of the characters on the moon? Were they shot slow motion? Was that a production combo of production and visual effects? Um, or like, were you involved with that or it was slow motion designed by the editors and then you just added that? I think most of the shots, I mean, a lot, a lot of work we did was to remove wires. So um, mm -hmm. a lot of the shots you wouldn't even think necessarily um, the characters were um, on, on a wire rig, they, they were. So we did a lot of wire removals, a lot of stunt harness removals. Uh, you saw in that one wide shot of the entire group of them kind of bouncing around. Um, every astronaut was on a wire rig, kind of giving them the weightless uh, feeling and the weightless look. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if those were shot over cranked. I think they might have been. So it was also shot at a higher frame rate, playing back slightly slower as well. So uh, just to go back to what you said, every actor is, uh, was on a wire. So even if they weren't jumping up and down on purpose like that, um, that was to give the floatness, float, floaty feeling for the wires. That's why they were shot wearing that the whole time. Yeah, even on uh, the interior shots when they're inside the, the lunar habitat, um, <clears throat> you know, an actor walking from one side of the lunar habitat to the other was wearing a wire harness. So each step they took felt, you know, slightly lighter than it should be. It's um, ah, a good trick. Good to know that. Um, and the, the big, I call it the hero shot. I don't know if you guys called it that. The big shot where you see the earth, a beautiful shot, was, um, I don't know if that's the length of the shot in the episode, but it's a beautiful shot. And just wondering if that was harder or took longer than some of the other shots because it had, seemed to have so many layers and depth to get to the, to the earth. And I'm sure there was discussion, how much of the earth show, how much shadow? Uh, yeah, there was. I remember that shot in particular. Um, there were specific ideas about where the earth should be placed exactly in frame. So we did a couple of iterations on that. And, um, you know, there, I think there definitely were some stylistic liberties taken in terms of like, would you actually see that side of the earth from that side of the moon at that given time? Ah. Um, so um, if there are any, anyone from NASA watching uh, might be disappointed on, on that aspect. <laughs> <laughs> where where did you get all the images of the moon? I mean, did you have to contact NASA to get some of those elements? And um, for those who don't really know visual effects, can you explain a little bit of getting the actual photographs incorporated into matte paintings? People may not understand what a matte painting is. Uh, sure, yeah. Well, most of the NASA photography, I believe, is all public domain because we pay taxes, if I'm correct. Um, so those images are uh, available on NASA's website. And um, we did incorporate some actual photographs into uh, 
matte painting elements, but mostly we're, we're just using them as a guide to, to do our own original paintings. A lot of times if you're, you know, trying try to create a set extension that needs a lot of hyper detail and it's really far away from camera, um, it's a lot easier to paint a single frame image um, with the layout and structure that you want for the shot rather than uh, create a digital asset for that because it's just so much faster and so much cheaper to do it that way, especially if that asset isn't going to be reused multiple times or um, reused from, from multiple angles. Uh, you can just paint uh, in Photoshop or um, and, and use that as your background. Right. And what, um, what was it shot in? Uh, what was the original material shot on? Do you know what kind of camera? And was it shot in 6K? These shots, were they shot in 6K, 4K? How did you finish it in what layout? Uh, I think the, it was a Lexa Mini LF, if I'm correct. It was uh, 4K. And you worked in 4K? Yes. Okay, great. And in the finishing process, um, I don't know if this is more a Jabbar question. In the finishing process, obviously in post-COVID world, the color timing, um, you, can't really, you can't really watch anything in, in, in 4K uh, on a standard monitor. Were, were there specific monitors that were sent to Greg Daniels' house or how was the, the finishing process done as far as color correction in 4K? Just from my own experience on another show, we couldn't see anything like that in our homes, we just didn't have those kind of setups. So we were trusting the facilities and what they could see on their monitors. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what Greg had at his house, but at my house, I have a 4K display and we were just uh, connected via stream box. So I would be stream boxing in to see the color session. And because I have a, a 4K monitor, I can look at it at a higher res resolution. It actually looked pretty good. I had never used stream box as a solution before and it was surprisingly good quality considering I, I was streaming it real time. That's amazing. And did you have to, and what kind of power did you need? Was there a certain level of uh, bandwidth you needed in order to, to work in 4K? I mean, I have 100 uh, megabits down and that was fine. I, I'm not sure what the minimum or maximum requirements are. Um, but then in terms of just reviewing for VFX purposes, you know, we we're all looking at 4K EXR. So that, that's a ton of files moving around. That, that actually took probably the most amount of time was just, I would download gig, hundreds of gigs of EXR. So I'd usually just set up a download at night and then look at it in the morning. And occasionally I would just get backed up because there were hundreds of gigs still coming down. And I tried to upgrade my uh, system, but I needed like days for Spectrum to come out and change the modem. I was like, I don't have time for that because we were in such a rush. So it was just backlogged where I was downloading for days, literally days straight. Was the show, I'm not sure uh, any of you can answer this question, but was the show always planned for a May 29th uh, release and it therefore just it became more of a time crunch because of the inability to all work in the same facility? Or was the release date changed? I mean, I can't- it was a time comment. crunch, that's why I was asking. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what the original release date was, but from the time that I came on, the release date was set and they were very um, much in of the mindset they weren't going to change the release date so it was like we kind of knew where the wall was and we were racing towards it <laughs> got it okay um <clears throat> uh i didn't know if there were any uh specific shots you you uh gentlemen wanted to look at in your breakdown reel that you wanted me to play again because i know some people 
for those of you who joined late, there's a breakdown reel, uh, there's a Vimeo link. I believe it's in the chat box. It's also on Slack for you to see the breakdown reel of their work on Space Force. But is there, are there any shots you wanted us to pull up so you could talk about uh, them while they're being watched? No, nothing in particular. But. Okay. Uh, we have some questions from the, um, from our viewers, listeners, uh, from our audience, and Chris is going to help me read them to us. Yeah. Um, first one, fun one. How much fun was it to work on this? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I think this was actually my first space project ever. Um, so, yeah, in the last uh, 12, 12 years of being in the visual effects industry, this is my first uh, outer space project I worked on. Was it the first space project for all of you? Uh, yeah, I think it was the first one for me. I think, I think at some point, um, there's some uh, data that I've used before for, for light longs for, uh, um, to see what the moon looks like that I looked at or in my earlier years and maybe in a bidding, a bidding on a project somewhere else. But I was the first, first one in production. It was, it was really fun. I liked it. That's great. Yeah, as far as Crafty Apes goes, um, we, did, uh, we did Hidden Figures um, a couple of years back, which was uh, you know, very similar as far as um, you know, spaceships and outer space and planets and things such as that. So, uh, that was, a, that was um, I think, one of our first space ones. So this is, I think, our second uh, that we've done. Yeah. You, you mentioned referencing uh, public domain NASA photos as source material. Were there any films or, or shows or, or any other work that you, that you were, were influenced by or that you didn't want to look like? Uh, I mean, I think we equally wanted to look as good as Ad Astra and not copy it at the same time. It's kind of the gold standard for um, uh, driving across the surface of the moon now, I feel like. Um, the, the work in that movie is pretty beautiful. Um, so, and, and when you're searching for surface reference online, just on Google, it's incredibly hard not to come across fake images. Um, there are lots of already CG rendered images of the moon surface, lots of stuff that's been heavily altered. So you have to really be careful to find out what you're looking at is uh, authentic. So kind of going on NASA's um, <coughs> image repository was the safest way to, to find stuff. Were you, just to talk on, off on that, did you see the Apollo 11 documentary and was any of your work influenced by that and the real footage? I mean, it's obviously quite different, but um, in, in, in what was captured in that documentary, because it was rescanned at 6K, I'm just curious if any of that influenced your work. Uh, I, I did see that. Uh, that was amazing documentary. Uh, the style of it was really cool too, because it was very, um, I don't remember there being much narration in that at all. They just kind of let the footage speak for itself, which is cool. Um, no, we didn't reference that um, too much, even though it was rescanned at 6K, the original source material on the like NASA feeds wasn't quite detailed enough for us to, to use it. Back to the helmet glass topic, did you do any special tracking for the face masks? And 
was that effect, the effects that you used for sound and fogging reasons? Um, so uh, I, I think I understand the question. So we, we did do um, real 3D um, tracks for all the helmet glass. So they were actual, it was actual curved glass geometry that we uh, match moved to the outside of the helmet for every shot. Um, that way, all of the visible scratches and dust on the glass would track correctly across their face and also um, uh, the reflections in that glass would all be kind of as true to the environment as we could make it. So if you look closely in the um, shots on the lunar surface, you can see the reflection of the lunar horizon, um, what would be behind camera reflected in, in the, the helmet glass. Um, we didn't, you know, a, a lot of times we have temp deadlines where in visual effects we have to deliver stuff for sound cues, but none of that glass was required to be in the shots in time for them to, um, you know, need it visible to alter the audio to make it sound like that they were um, recorded inside the glass. And we, did, we didn't do any um, breath fogging either. I think um, the spacesuits are designed in an air-conditioned fashion to where that wouldn't really take place or else the, the astronauts would hmm. not be able to see them. I see you committed to full roto over blue screen. Can you discuss that decision? By the time the project came to us, uh, principal photography had been wrapped. So we were using Roto as the best solution for extracting those astronauts from the plates. Um, but we weren't involved in making the decision on how that was shot. Um, since you were not involved in pre-pro or onset, are there any shots you would have handled differently if given that opportunity? Mm. Um, well, even after principal photography was done. I, it, like if I was to go back and do this project again, I think I would, we, we did a lot of work on trying to design the moon surface um, to integrate into the plate photography, which was relatively flat with just a few rocks kind of sprinkled around where the actors were standing. Um, so we had lots of cratering and uh, topography that needed to kind of be flattened out as it approached the camera so we could blend into those plates correctly. Um, but I think if I was to do it again, I'd probably try to commit more to um, removing the plate ground in more shots and kind of leveraging our, our CG moon asset in the foreground more. And would you, um... Uh, I know you weren't involved in original um, the original photography. Was there a on was there a visual effects supervisor on set um, during this the shooting of this material or a data wrangler? You know, I, I know you weren't involved, so you may not know. Um, as far as I know, Trent Smith was on set for um, the supervision part of the show, and um, and I believe that they also had a data wrangler. Yeah. Um, was anything shot over cranked to help simulate, I know we touched on this a little bit, but could you speak more about it? Was anything shot over cranked to help simulate the lower gravity or was any time effect done in VFX only? Or could you describe that process a little more? 
Yeah, that's what I had mentioned earlier. Um, you know, a lot of the shots, they, they relied more on um, stuff being shot over cranked along with the help of wires to make the people feel um, uh, zero G or, you know, moon gravity. Um, but there were a couple of close-up shots where in addition to that, we did do some optical flow retimes to the, the plate photography to try to get it to feel even slower and less gravity than what we shot. Could you just describe for all of us what overcranked means and optical flow retimes? <laughs> overcranked, uh, you know, a, a standard film would be shot at 24 frames a second. Overcranked, as an example, if you shot um, 48 frames a second and played it back at 24 frames a second, everything would appear to be half speed. Um, and optical flow retiming is kind of a digital way of um, uh, if, if you are trying to slow footage down, um, the software will generate vectors in between adjacent images um, for pixel locations and then try to kind of come up with what would be in between those two frames, essentially creating new frames in between frames and, and interjecting those in. So if you were to just um, take 24 um, frames and slow that down by half speed, um, you'd really just have a frame every other frame, a whole frame. And you, you've probably seen that effect before where things can get really stuttery. Um, it seems like everything's just kind of, you know, happening in slow motion and you can tell it's a slow motion effect. Um, but op optical flow retimes try to create those in-between frames. So there's um, a frame for our eyes to fill in in between that, making it a smooth, smooth return. And does that work pretty well, or do you have to go back in and tweak, or? Uh, some stuff that works really well. Um, it depends on what the subject matter is. If it's really high frequency stuff, like you were trying to retime, um, say, the surface of an ocean, um, it wouldn't work because you, know, you have features and highlights changing on every frame. And it really kind of counts on the visual continuity between objects to generate those vectors to create those new frames. And um, so say, you know, um, just a, a shot of say somebody walking, the camera moving through the desert, um, there'd be a lot more solid features to track in between frames rather than say an ocean surface that's changing in every frame. Great. Um, have you ever used game engines to render full environments like the moon? And what, what similarities do you, do you see between VFX and game graphics? Or what, what do you see being um, the future of using game engines in our work? Um, I've, I've never personally used um, game engines. I know a lot of people have talked about potentially using them. Um, they're, I think people have talked about using them for like previs, so they can see a really nice, beautiful finished model and see it really fast in, in, um, in maybe some choreography that is specific to the shot. I've never used it. Um, I think it would be great to play with at some point, um, but like all things in visual effects, there's just so much out there and it's hard to get a grasp on every, every little part.
Could you explain for those who don't know what a game, what that means, game engine? Um, I actually can't just because I've never used it. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> I know, I know the name, you know, your name like Unreal, Unreal Engine. Um, but I, uh, I can't speak to it technically. I can, I can help out a little bit. So, so with a, a real time game engine, you have a virtual space, so a 3D space where objects can exist and be animated in real time. And there's no rendering, there's no computation. So normally visual effects, we set something up, we track a shot and we set up all the different elements and then we hit render and we wait for the computer to compute all the frames. And then we come back, whether it's hours or days later and we can look at everything with real time rendering in the game engine, it just all happens in real time. So if you are making a car drive past or a spaceship fly, you can say, oh, no, a little more left. No, that's too far left, a little more right. And it's all interactive. So it's getting better and better and the quality is improving. But for the most part, it's good for things like previs. As Patrick said, it's not quite there for uh, final shots yet, but it's getting there. Uh, the, other, the other area it's really being used is virtual production where it's, uh, you have LED screens all around your set and you're able to put these um, virtual environments around your actors and have the camera track to it. So, it, it, but even that is, is sort of an up and coming technology. It's being used, uh, but it's, it's still at the forefront and, and it's not widely adopted yet. That's what we saw in the Mandalorian, right? Exactly, yep. Okay. Is there, or before you ask another question, is there any software now that you've been through this uh, process, is there anything that you would change assuming there's a season two, um, you know, in your workflow regarding the type of software you're using in the, might be a question for Patrick, how things, you know, um, overall workflow. So the, the software that we mainly use is, is fully integrated to our pipeline. So that's what pretty much every artist, uh, CG artist or compositor is familiar with. That's what we all use. It's, they're all set up to talk to each other. We have um, some great pipeline um, guys that, that allow great um, workflow between the between all the software so we can I can easily push information um, other than a render other than a 2d picture to another artist on another platform um, so they can put in their part and then we can merge that again later they can kick it back to me um, so pretty much you know we're Maya Max mostly I, I know we have some some Houdini as well um, for the 3d side um, and then you know if there's a great if there's a great piece of software that comes along that offers a great tool set, there's we pretty, one of us, or if not, most of us will probably jump on it to see what it's about. You know, just, just like talking about Unreal or uh, uh, talking about the, um, those game engines. Once it, you know, if, it, if it's something that's like, we really should be using this, we'll, we'll immediately start looking at it because anything to help, you know, save time, make better work, um, you know, just create the, the whole process, make it faster, smoother, um, especially as we're working remotely too. Um, we'll always, always looking to take, take advantage of that. Thank you. Great. Um, and we just got asked, how long did you have for each episode? Um, I mean, there were some rolling deliveries for episode cutoffs, I believe. But I think our total schedule for the work we did in episode nine and 10, and we had some random work in uh, four and six and seven, I believe. 
Um, I think start to finish, we had eight weeks um, for our, our whole scope of work, uh, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and that, that was for like 110 shots. Um, I think we had maybe 20 artists total between 3D artists and compositors um, working on that. But speaking of um, number of artists and all your different locations, were the adaptations that you had to make for COVID and remote working really that different from how you work anyway? Be because by definition, each of your locations is remote <laughs> from the other ones, and you're already sharing work. Um, how did how was that even any different? I was just going to say that um, you know the different locations. Um, you know, a lot of them have tax credits that you got to um, um, adhere to. So again, Space Force was a tax credit show and um, for California. So we had to do the work in our California office, our Los Angeles office. So um, I think we had a small split where we were able to outsource a little bit of it uh, to one of our other offices to help out. But for the most part, uh, the work was done in our Los Angeles office. Yeah. And then uh, from there, everybody went remote and uh, they all work within, you know, LA County. So it still qualifies as the tax credit, so. Yeah, and, and you're right in the fact that, um, you know, working with those remote locations of ours, really the workflow is not that different. It was the fact that our team working on this project in LA had started working in the same building, sitting next to each other, oh. then was all told to go home and sit, you know, in their own houses and work separately. That was kind of a big change for us. Which of those adaptations do you think will be permanent or stick around or, or which would you like to keep um, once we all physically return to the workplace? Good question. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, personally, I think that it's probably going to be a combination of both, um, depending upon what the studios require and Netflix requires. Um, if they allow for um, visual effects to work remotely, um, from here on out, uh, we'll see. That's that really is up to what what how they want to do it um, and TPN and. Um, but as of right now, I think uh, you know we plan on working remotely until we you know have to be back in the office, which I would say it's probably going to be you know having 50% of the work workforce working from the office, making sure that they're safe, making sure that they're six feet apart, making sure that we're following guidelines that are set by the CDC and the states. Um, and so I, my, my guess is that it's probably going to be a combination, but, um, you know, that's just my guess. So you think cli the client from client side, like Netflix, they will, they will indicate what workflows they're okay with going forward. And then you'll have to kind of retrofit to that or. I believe so. I mean, I think that that's how all the studios will is uh, they'll set their guidelines and they'll say either, yes, you can work remotely if, if uh, you follow these protocols. Um, if you don't follow those protocols, you can't work remotely. So, um, you know, again, we do what the studios tell us to do and, you know, we comply. So um, it's really just working with them and making sure we're, uh, the content is safe and um, they're, you know, we're, we're following the TPN guidelines and the studio guidelines, yeah. Could there be a cost savings in going more remote ultimately once workflows are, are ironed out and 
all other factors being equal, like security and whatnot, um, could work it done at, at a lower cost that way? I don't know if it would get done at a lower cost. It might save in some overhead um, if you don't need to have a you know, 10,000, 20,000 square foot office uh, to house all your artists and you only need half the space. Then yes, there would be some uh, overhead savings there. I don't know if the, the cost savings would be there otherwise because the artists still are paid what they're paid. And um, so I don't know. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what happens there. For younger people who are looking to to be artists, to be in the VFX world and, and work on, you know, this kind of show, this is a hit Netflix show, what software and, and skills would you recommend that they um, absolutely need to know? I don't, uh, I don't think any, uh, you know, it's not software specific. Um, I would say you need to you know, everything for any movie and every television show is shot with a camera. Um, you need to understand photography and how photography works and have a thorough, solid understanding of that, how lenses work, um, how images are created and the process in which they get put together. Um, so I would say photography and Photoshop. Um, aside from that, you can get into more, you know, 3D specific software packages, but that's, um, it kind of depends on you know, what, what your interests are and where they lie. Um, and then you, depends on what you're, you're, you're interested in having your discipline be is going to determine uh, what you need to focus on as an artist. Um, going back to the remote topic for a second, we just got this question. Um, how are you handling workstations, software, backup, virus control, security, and other artist-specific costs? while everyone works from home. In other words, maybe could you just give us a, a, a general overview of, of that workflow and, and maybe what artists need to be ready to have at their home to be remote? All of our, all of our um, computers are housed in um, our offices as far as um, um, in our servers and all of our artists who are working from home are using Teradici and um, um, blanking out on the name, Brandon, help me. What's the other? Sophos. Sophos, right? Uh, Sophos. Um, so those are the two items that we use. So all, all of the um, frames and all the, all the footage is all um, stored on our servers in our offices. Um, and then they connect remotely via Teradici and then uh, Sophos um, as well. So that, that's how it's done on our side. Yeah, in terms of, uh, you know, what equipment you would need to have for yourself, I mean, uh, the only thing, um, aside from the, you know, the VPN and the Teradici is just I have two monitors and a mouse. Um, I think it's going to be, uh, unless you're truly working freelance, I, I don't know, um, you know, what your machine specs would uh, need to be. But hopefully if you're working for a, a, a larger visual effects company, they would provide you with the access to their network that you would need. On when it kind of all happened, when the shutdown happened, and, you know, like they talked about earlier, where within two days we were moved from office to home. Um, literally, all the artists kind of showed up with boxes and took most of what we needed. It was on the desk because it's, it's already set up that way for us. We, we don't have access to our machines, even when we're in the office, um, part of the, the protection stuff. So that stuff's all locked in um, the, the room, the server room. So we, we connect for the most part, 
in a similar way. So we just kind of took everything. There was just that one little extra box that we had um, that allowed us to connect. Um, other than that, that's, that, that's pretty much it. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see how much uh, work continues remotely when everyone goes back to work and how it affects visual effects versus you know the other industries. I think we have time for one other question. Uh, Chris, if you have any others, otherwise I have one. Um, sure, how about we go with your question? I would just like to announce that next okay. week's post break will be on sound editorial and remote mixing. Same time, same place, Thursday at four o'clock. Right. Uh, my last question was, uh, I know this was a, this was a series for Netflix, uh, in your experience as a visual effects company working with, um, a streaming channel versus a studio or versus series versus, uh, a feature. Um, what were the positives or the negatives, uh, about the experience? I don't, uh, well, like uh, the question being, what what's the difference between working on a you know episodic series versus like a feature? Well, just as far as you know, working for a Netflix series uh, versus a yeah versus a, a a feature as far as you know the workflow. Obviously, this is a different situation because mm -hmm. of the the COVID experience, and it sounds like your turnaround schedule is much faster than it would be on features. Um, yeah, I, d I don't think there was a, a really big difference, you know, other than the timelines. You have um, more more lead time in, you know, doing concept and asset development and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, not, not a huge difference per se. Um, I, I think internally just, you know, uh, tra tracking things across episodes um, is a little more difficult than keeping uh, track of everything when it's just confined into one film by itself. Um, but, you know, that's stuff we have or build solutions for, so it's not that big of a deal. Okay. Yeah, and I think for us uh, as a company, uh, you know, Crafty H, we, we do um, both probably about 50% episodic and 50% features. So we're used to working both, both mediums pretty seamlessly. Um, it has never been uh, for us, difficult to like move between the two two sides, whether it be episodic or features. Uh, really, it's about quality and uh, what level of quality are, are the shows going for, whether it be episodic or features, and uh, being able to hit that bar. Right. Wonderful. Well, thank you, gentlemen, so much for your involvement and for sharing your uh, for sharing all your information about Space Force and the real. Uh, we will, like I said before, it, this will be available on the Post New York Alliance website under video and under podcast, as well as a link to the uh, to the breakdown reel. And so I just really want to thank Brandon and Patrick and Jason and Jabbar so much for your time. And thank uh, Chris and Ryan and Rebecca for organizing this and all of you for attending. And uh, I hope that everyone joins us next week for the... Uh, the next post break and I hope everyone stays well, stays safe and healthy, wear your mask, wash your hands, uh -huh. be well. Thank you. <laughs>